the only real way we can kind of approach this stuff is to get like to really get in our being that there's always going to be blind spots. There's always going to be a part of me that I miss that I can't see. That's just the nature of seeing is that I'm going to have some area that I can't see. I'm going to have some blind spot. And so if we let go of this need to like, not me, I've got it all sorted out, but instead are kind of willing to be a little more open and like, I feel good about myself, but I know I'm willing to trust that there is a place where I'm not yet doing my work that creates a lot more space to be open and to be less resistant when that that gift of seeing that thing does show up. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. There are many leadership coaches and researchers. If you like me and my way of doing things, which is pretty geeky, you might be pretty geeky yourself. You probably like leadership too. Adam studies brilliant people, often geeky, and leadership. We get to his research results about halfway through the conversation. He focuses on helping people like you and me, the geeks among us, well, I should say the brilliant among us, and improve leadership, our leadership. In this conversation, we focus on blind spots, among other topics, but his in particular. I recorded this conversation almost a year and a half ago, so you can hear I hadn't, I don't think I'd quite developed my voice yet, but Adam's focus and specialty on brilliance emerges. He's vulnerable and open. And still, there's some great nuggets from both of us. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Adam Kwani. Adam, how are you? I've got my coffee and my tea, so I have two drinks ready. I'm doing amazing. Double barrel, what was it? Double fisting. That's right, yeah. <laughs> That's how long I've been out of college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm making up for lost time. So I probably want to talk about how we met, and I probably want to talk about what you do. I'm going to jump into what you do, because I think that's going to be more interesting to the listeners. But if how we met comes up, then we can switch to that too. So Perfect. you coach and lead leaders, which... First of all, it's meta. That's kind of cool. And I think people who know me tend to be geeky. I don't want to put off any people who are not geeks, but uh, that's kind of cool. And I'm curious, I guess where I'd like to start is, do you start with people who are not leaders and you help them become leaders? Or do you start with leaders who are leaders and help them become phenomenal leaders or, or something different? Both? Yeah, probably. Well, so I think the answer is both. And the reason I say, I think, stop me if I go too far. I'm a geek too. So if I go too far in a tangent, I'm going to rely on you, Josh, to pull me back. But I think the, the foundation for the work I do is that leadership is not a position. It is not related to a hierarchy. It's not something that you have to kind of go out into the world to get to. It's a way of being that you can choose into in any moment. So someone can tell me, Adam, go and clean the urinals with a toothbrush. And there is an opportunity there for me to be a victim to that person giving me that order or for me to be a leader in how I approach that. So I think, I don't think there's like 
people that are already leaders and people that are not yet leaders. There's just who, however the person's showing up in their life in this moment, there's always an opportunity to deepen the leadership that they're bringing to that moment. What type of, can you describe maybe a story of a couple, I mean, obviously no personal details, but uh, Mm -hmm. someone who's come to you and how that's changed. Cause I think people listening to this want, if you, if you listen to leadership and X podcast and the environment podcast, you probably want to improve your leadership. You probably, I think that's going to be an interest of theirs hopefully to lead in the area of the environment. I mean, mm-hmm. but there's lots of areas to lead. And so they could learn from the experience of, of people that you've worked with. Can you share a couple stories? Yeah, yeah. So the, the first one that comes to mind is a woman I worked with a few years back. She ran a very successful, so her background was in interior design, which is a lot cooler than I realized it is. It's kind of like she's she described herself like the architect for the inside of someone's house rather than just someone that picks out colors and paintings. Very brilliant woman, ran a very successful business where she both had a a storefront as well as was hired out on contract to work with these famous people in the Cayman Islands who had, you know, multi-million dollar houses and really wanted it to look beautiful, blah, blah, blah. So she was already in the traditional sense, a leader. You know, she had a very like a multi-million dollar business. She was successful. She was glamorous. She was very charming. All of the things that we kind of, I guess, in industrial age thinking would apply to like, wow, that person's really a leader. But underneath the surface, her experience was she kind of hated people. <laughs> One of the first things she ever asked me was like, Adam, do you actually like people? Because, um, and the reason for that was that she felt this need to constantly, I guess the way I would describe it is like manage people. So if something went wrong on the pipeline, you know, the curtains were going to take longer. I know this is a bit of a weird example, but bear with me. The curtains might take a little bit longer. Maybe the paint was going to be delayed, maybe et cetera, et cetera. She felt a need to manage that for the customer and to, to hide that. So she would, she would, frankly, she would lie to them. She would make up stories. She would never just tell them the outright truth because she was scared of their reaction and because she felt that it meant something about herself. So you can kind of see like part of our job as a leader is to let people have their experience. And she was hiding that from them. So while she was very successful, she was also getting in the way of of letting people show up the way that people show up. And the cost was that she would start out loving someone. And then over time, because of all the managing she was doing and how frustrating that was and how they never seemed to appreciate anything she did because they never really knew everything she was doing, she'd eventually get to this point where she deeply resented her, her customers. And then, you know, it just became kind of a transactional relationship. So I like that example because on the surface, a lot of people would think, well, who cares? You know, whatever. She's already successful. She's already making money. She's already doing these cool things. What does it matter? But what it matters is that that stuff that's kind of intangible and that happens behind the scenes or that's in the background, that seeps into literally everything. So the experience that people had while they were satisfied with the work was one of feeling always just a little bit resented or feeling always like, I don't know if this person, I love what she did, but I don't know if she likes me. And consequently, she would draw clients to herself that also were resentful and held things back and all of that sort of stuff. So that's one example. I want to stop talking and see if you have anything you want to say or ask about that before I come up with something else. Yeah. I mean, the first thing, I want to start with one small thing. You said manage. And to me, the word was control. Like she wants to control Mm -hmm. the people around her, which is, I think a lot of people, that's their view of leadership is to command and control or to exert authority. And is that a good word to use 
is like she was trying to control people. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we could come up with any number of like manipulate might be an even stronger word. And it was being done out of a desire to like, it's done from a, ultimately, if you go far enough back, like it's because she cares, right? She's not manipulating them maliciously. It's more like, I don't want this person to have to be with the impact of them feeling bad about how things are going. So I'm going to protect them from that. But it's still control, managing, manipulating. And for your role, how do you approach this? How do you, like someone comes to you and they're, she's, she's already successful because a lot of people, they're not open to being led. They're not open to being coached. They don't have humility or I don't know. I'm probably one of them. Nah, <laughs> and me too. <laughs> how do you work with people to, who are already great to make them greater or how do you see your role? Yeah. Like kind of what's the entry point and how do you work with that? Yeah. So I think it's like, I just acknowledge you, Josh, for owning, like I'm probably one of those. And I, I know I, I can have that too. And I think this is the challenge with a lot of leadership X, leadership books, leadership podcasts, is they're all based around telling us what we ought to do or how to do things differently. And we simultaneously crave that because it's like, finally the answer. And we also resent it because it's like, who are you to tell me what to do, even if you are famous or whatever. And anytime t- someone tells us what to do, it takes away from our our own process. So my role is twofold. First, it's when people come to me, there's usually a reason. There's usually something in their life where they're like, X, Y, and Z are all great, but there's this little niggling thing that I can't seem to get over. And most commonly for my people, it tends to be, I've never had more of the stuff I thought I wanted, and I've never felt more empty. I feel like there's a lack of fulfillment And if we really get a little bit deeper, there's probably a deep lack of intimacy and a sense of loneliness in their life. So the first is just to to get them to own that, which is a vulnerable thing for people to share. We would rather that the world kind of regard us as awesome and only see our light. And so as a starting point, I've got to be willing to share my bits of darkness with that person I'm talking to so that they have the clearing to then venture their own stuff forward. That's the first part. And then the second thing is to just bring people to an awareness of what they're actually choosing and then let them choose again. So I would call that putting them at choice. I'm not telling them, I never told that client that I mentioned, hey, you need to stop doing this. I just worked with her and helped her see that there was an impact to the way she was showing up and helping her see that maybe the whole reason she's doing that is not creating the results that she thinks. And maybe that's actually what's getting her to this point where she has a deep sense of resentment of all of her clients. And maybe with a little exploration, she can start to see everywhere else in her life where that same kind of thing is happening. So I just bring them to that awareness. And then my job is to not be attached to it because often we see it, we see that we're choosing from fear, and then we still choose from fear because we're just not yet ready to let go of the comfort that that provides us. You describe a really hands-off, in my view, a, a hands-off, like she could easily not get this. Like, yes. you're not telling her, I mean, what she expects probably if, from her, my understanding of her view of leadership is someone to take a very controlling, like, here's what to do, here's how to do it. But you're bringing her to a place for her to see stuff. Does it always work or does it ever not work? There's plenty of times when it doesn't work. So the bottom line is people have to be more committed to whatever possibility they want to create, right? There's always something available on the other side of this, and they have to be more committed to that than I am. If I'm more committed to them creating that, then I start to become, you know, if, if <laughs> I start to become like a parent, 
which is what a lot of people want at first. We want someone to hit us in the back of the head and make us eat our vegetables and make us get up and go for a run. But what happens is that works for the first month. And then there's a reason underneath all that why we're not doing those things in the first place. And just having someone force us to do it, eventually we're going to resent them for that and find some other way to worm out of it. So really in developing leadership, what I'm doing is helping people get a lot more clear on what they're up to. Like we kind of reel me in if I'm going too far, but what I notice is we don't have very much reverence for the way we show up in the world, by which I mean, I go, huh, I keep coming home and eating cookies. I'm such an idiot. I'm so fat and lazy. I should really smarten up. I should do this differently. There's no reason why I'm doing this. And then I kind of dismiss the wisdom that might be available for me if I were to really take a look there. Like, Adam, what is it that has you eating cookies? I know this is a ridiculous example, but bear with me. What, what is the thing that, that you get out of eating cookies? Why might you be doing that? And so I really want to slow people down and invite them to hold these things they dislike about themselves with a degree of reverence, almost like awe, like, why would I be doing that? There's got to be some reason underneath this that makes 100% sense. I don't think you're going off. Well, you might be going off topic for what you're thinking about. But what I'm really thinking about is I think people are listening to this and I'm listening to this because leading people in the area of the environment, you don't have authority over them and you can't just mm. tell them what to do. And yes. so hopefully if people weren't thinking about this, like rewind to the beginning and listen to what he was saying again, <laughs> because you're talking about like, why do people, it's, it's very interesting. Why do people behave the way they do? I've started a lot of talks when, when I'm invited to talk on the environment. I, a lot of times I start off with how many, I love this. How many people here, you know, you all know about the possibilities of sea levels rising and uh, crops, you know, not being able to grow and famine yeah. and things like that. All right. How many here want that? <laughs> right. So no one raises their hand. So I say, uh, okay, now, now let's switch it. Everyone whose hand is up, put it down, which is no one. And everyone whose down hand is down, put it up. I go, okay, now keep your hand up. If you contribute to that, if you pollute, if you needlessly create greenhouse emissions and now everyone's like, oh crap, I got to keep my hand up. Yeah. And so what I haven't done is I'm thinking about like with treat with reverence. Why are you your value is one thing and your behavior is, is the opposite, at least in this one area sometimes. Yeah. Why is that? And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that for myself. I haven't really spent a lot of, a lot of time having them think about it. Yeah. There's one example in particular I always think of where we all get frustrated that the grocery stores, you know, we get frustrated when they throw out the food that's bad. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, or, you know, you find out, oh my God, they threw out this food instead of donating it. Yeah. It's not, not bad. Just hasn't, some of it's gone bad, but some of it's just like bruised right. yeah, it's or just not pristine or whatever. But here's what I notice. I'm unwilling to buy the bruised apple. Like I pick through the apples and I buy only the pristine apples. So I'm actually exacerbating that problem. I'm a part of it. And I know that part of this is like, what's the practice for you to take on here, Adam? And perhaps that's it. But I'm just, I notice all of these places where it's easy for us to point to like Exxon or someone and be like, they're wrong or Monsanto. And, and certainly they're doing things that probably aren't benefiting us in the long run. But like, it's much harder to look over on our side of the fence and look at the small places where we're doing this. Have you done that in your life? I mean, besides the apples? Like take, just taking a look? Yeah. Yeah, like one of the places I'm I am have been present to recently is 
I don't know if you guys have it in the States. Up, up north in Canada, we have anti-bullying day. Do you guys have that where we all wear pink shirts or whatever? And If we do, it's, I, I mean, NY, I don't know of NYU doing it. It sounds like something we would have, but I'm not aware of it. Right. So, you know, basically it's anti-bullying. It's pretty self-explanatory. The idea is, you know, be stand against bullying, which is noble in intention. But I noticed that what we do is we look to the, we look out there to find the bully and then condemn them rather than take a look in our own lives and see like, where am I a bully? Not the question, am I a bully? Which is a yes, no answer, which because of the way cognitive dissonance works, we're always going to answer, no, I'm not. I'm a good person. I'm not a bully. The better question is to ask, where am I? Where already am I showing up as a bully? So that's one place where I noticed a ton of places where I was being a bully or showing up in a way that could be perceived as a bully or, or using coercion to get my way, you know? And so that was a really big thing for me that I took on and I was like, damn, wow, I'm really showing up as a thing I really detest. Is it hard to do? I mean, like, it, it, is it rewarding? How do you, how, do, how does it feel to do this? Because I hear it sounds like you're like glad you did it, but after you face something you didn't want to face. Yeah. And I'm asking because do people at home, I think you're saying people at home would benefit from this. If so, can we make it easier for them to do it? Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of like um, the nature of our blind spots, which is what I'm talking about, right? Like growing up, I was bullied. So I detest bullying. And because I cannot stand bullying so much, I I kind of create this cognitive blind spot where I can't see where I'm doing it because I, I can't fathom even that that fact. So we, we tend to become the thing we, we hate the most. And so there's, we can give some practices for people listening at home for how to see your blind spots, but I don't, I've never experienced it. Like it's really a comfortable thing. You were listening, I was listening to, uh, you talked to one guest where she was saying, talking about the nature of bravery and how it's never like, Oh, now I figured out how to be brave. It's great. It's like a spiral. We're constantly finding new places where it's like, oh crap, it's it's scary all over again to lean into this particular area. So I always find discovering those blind spots, it's it's almost so bright when you finally see them. And it requires a real willingness, a real commitment to get past the question of, do I do this? And to ask, let's just start from the basis that I do do this because I'm a human and I've got the capacity for all of these things. Now, where am I doing it? I'm going to put this in terms of some, have you come across my, my new phrase and run environmentalism? I only, I want you to describe it a little bit to me because I've, I've heard you say it, but I don't know that I have the full gist of it. Okay. So there's a lot of people out there who are, oh man, I found this research that shows that, let me, I actually have it up on my browser. It says they worked with a thousand people. Results of the data analysis show no significant differences found between the impacts of environmentally aware and environmentally unaware consumers i.e. brown and super green consumers. So that's you know people who don't identify as environmentalists versus people who do identify as environmentalists consume approximately the same amount, of, uh, same amount of energy and produce approximately the same amount of carbon emissions. I'm like, people think that they're doing it and they're not. Talk about a blind spot. And yeah. first of all, you have to think to yourself, what am I? Am, am I one of them? I think I'm doing, well, compared to the past, I've changed a lot, but maybe it's not that big of a change. Anyway, so how does this, how do things like that happen? How do people see themselves as being very environmental when they're not? And I think it's incredibly important to be aware of your blind spots. It's hard to find them, mm. but if you don't, because we we usually try to protect ourselves from from seeing them because they make us feel bad to be aware of them. Yeah. But 
if you don't, if you're not aware of them, you can't do anything about them. And so then you're stuck with them unless you face up to them. Anyway, so how did people do this? How did I used to do it? How do, how maybe I, am I still doing it? So Enron, how did Enron look so profitable for so long? So you take a company, you split it up into multiple parts. And in one part or some of the parts, you put in all the profits. And in other parts, you put all of the losses and now act like the losses, act like the, those parts aren't there. Yeah. Now suddenly you're incredibly profitable. So take your life, divide it into multiple parts. And in some parts you say, that's where my recycling goes. And that's where my, you know, not eating meat for whoever you don't eat, you know, all the things that you do to try to improve your effect on the environment by whatever you consider an improvement. And then now you have other parts of your life and you say, uh, maybe you go fly around the world all the time to visit your, fa- your relatives in different places. And you say, well, that's family. That doesn't count. And so you don't count that. And now suddenly you're a super green in the words of this paper. <laughs> right. And the last piece of it is that in, in Enron, after it happened, there's some money left over and you want to get it to the shareholders. You want to get, I guess, to the pension holders and the people who, who lost in this. And so the accountants and the forensic accountants with the government and so forth, they go through to try to find the lost money and they try to figure it all out. And, you know, hopefully they got as much of the money out of it, out that they could. But, you know, they missed some of it because accounting is complicated. Nature does not lose track of a single molecule of pollution. It doesn't lose any mercury. If you do something that causes emissions or causes pollution, none of it, not one atom gets lost. Right. And so... You might think like, oh, no one notices that I'm doing this, but it doesn't matter if people notice it or not. It happens. So that's Enron environmentalism. And I feel like it's what you're talking about is how to get out of that. Yeah, a little bit, which is, I mean, the easiest way to, well, I I think there's something that happens too, where the enormity of these problems have us, we become overwhelmed and then we shut down. So we're just like, there's no way I can address all of this what's the point? How can I, I can't even, and then I'm just going to go back to doing what I know to do. And so I think there's like real value for people in like almost letting themselves, like letting yourself off the hook a little bit. Like you don't have to change all of this. Maybe all there is for you to do right now is 1% shift or even 0.05% shift. And that can be an amazing thing. And then the the other thing that came to mind as you were speaking about, like, how do we kind of move past this or how do we allow ourselves to see our blind spots is (laughs) the only way I want to own something here, which is that as part of my job, I do a lot of personal development work. I, I get supported. I'm committed to getting supported more than anyone else I know, because otherwise I don't see how my work can work, right? I'm holding all these people up. I've got to be doing a ton of work. But I've done a lot of that work from this righteous kind of place where it's like, if I do enough work, then I won't have any blind spots, then I won't get called out, then I won't get caught unawares. And I'm realizing these days that that's impossible. The only real way we can kind of approach this stuff is to get like to really get in our being that there's always going to be blind spots, there's always going to be a part of me that I miss that I can't see. That's just the nature of seeing is that I'm going to have some area that I can't see, I'm going to have some blind spot. And so if we let go of this need to like, not me, I've got it all sorted out, but instead are kind of willing to be a little more open and like, I feel good about myself, but I know I'm willing to trust that there is a place where I'm not yet doing my work that creates a lot more space to be open and to be less resistant when that, that gift of seeing that thing does show up. I feel like this is something that you do yourself and that you do with your clients. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my coach catches me out all the time. There's often times where I'll show up and be like, how do I, sh- ah, this person's driving me nuts because they're being such a victim. And then she'll point out for me quite graciously, all the areas where I'm showing up as a complete victim in my life. And, <laughs> and that's where my work starts. So I think like having a lot of empathy for ourselves and not letting that then let us off the hook. Kind of like, it's okay. It's okay that I, I can't solve all of this. And it's okay that there's places I'm going to be a little bit embarrassed to discover. And that doesn't mean that I'm bad. Just means like, ah, that's where my work lies. How does that come off to a client? Like in the case of this woman that you spoke about before, maybe other clients, is it, is it hard for them to, to stomach or is it welcome? Because I'm also thinking people listening, hopefully they're thinking, I think a lot of people, how do I put it? You know, little kids, they, they come back from school and they're like, they learn to, I don't know, something about recycling or something about whatever. And they come back and they tell their parents, this is what you should do. Yeah. And a lot of us do that. And we're like, oh, I, fa- I figured out what's right. Now I'm going to try to get everyone to do what's right. Yeah. And people with different values don't agree on what's right. And so I think I'm still learning it. It was certainly like a big thing, like to look at the world from the other person's perspective and be able to, to lead. You have to think of their motivations. And I think what you're doing is, I'm reading is like you're enabling that. You're helping people get to learn that faster. Like, where were you when I was younger? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, why am I not hearing okay. you now? <laughs> I was making my own mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> so to answer your question, just in terms of a timeline, I would say it's usually probably the first three months of the work I'm doing with someone is just supporting them to see the truth. If we were to say it really bluntly, it's like helping people just stop lying to themselves because we're all lying to ourselves constantly. We can't see that because the lies we tell ourselves are in part what has gotten us to where we are today. And so, you know, you said, how do, how do your clients take that? How do they do that? It's really challenging at first. Because the thing that we most despise tends to be the thing that lies in our blind spots. So for example, if someone were to point out to me, like, Adam, you're a bully, the first thing that would happen is I'd have a ton of justifications for why what I'm doing is quite different from what that bully down the street is doing. And then next, I might, I might kind of dismiss that person. And then over time, I might, it might stick in my craw a little bit. And then I might start to look a little bit more and start to see like, oh my goodness, I'm... I'm surrounded by these pieces of evidence that suggest that maybe what that person said to me is actually accurate. And then slowly over time, I get to a kind of like a, a willing admittance where I'm like, okay, I'm willing to accept that this is true. And then the next thing that happens is we start to berate and beat ourselves up for it. So then we're like, oh my God, I'm a bully and I suck and I'm a horrible human being. Then we have to get through that whole thing so that I can come to like really get that I'm not a bad person. Neither is that bully down the street. I'm just doing this because this is what this is how I learned to get by in the world. And there's some, if I can hold this with reverence and kindness, there's some reason I learned to show up this way. And if I can relax and allow space for all of it, then I can start to choose something different. But as long as I'm attacking myself or denying it, it's kind of hard to do anything other than curl up in a ball and put our fingers in our ear and shout really loudly. Yeah, it's it's like... Um... It reminds me of when I started business school that I, I came in and I was like, ah, I have a PhD in physics. I know there's no math that's going to be anything. I <laughs> yeah. And I was CEO for a while. It's going to be a cakewalk. And I didn't yes. even make it through the first, I didn't even make it to the first class because it was during orientation. I got blown out of the water from like not knowing what was going on. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. Or looking back now, I, I guess if I were in that same situation now, I'd be like, wow, this is going to be way more than I, like, I'm going to get more than I thought. Mm-hmm. 
I'm also curious, I'm going to change the topic a bit abruptly here, but can you tell me about the project that led, that got us, put us in touch? Is that, are you up for talking about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I can't remember who introduced us, but it was because I've been doing research into the, the nature of brilliance, specifically how brilliance and leadership interact. And so someone said, Adam, you got to talk to Josh. And, and so uh, we were initially doing an interview together around leadership and brilliance and how those two things um, play out together. I'm curious what you've come, what you've found, if you had like hypotheses or expectations and if they've, if you've met the expectations or if it's too soon to tell or what the process has been. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the things I've noticed is that first of all, there's no objective, better way to be there. Like every, my stand is every human being has innate value and it's that innate value that is the, the, like the more they can shine that into the world, that's the deeper they're leading. Right. So for someone who's just got this gift of absolute love and generosity, great. That their best leadership comes from them being able to fully embody that. The people I'm really fascinated with are people that have a high degree of brilliance. They're very sharp-minded. And some of the things I've noticed is that those people tend to tend to be really good in clutch decision-making because we're so good at separating our head from our hearts because we love to think and to put things into formula because formula are consistent and you can derive the answer from them and they're knowable. Whereas we do not tend to do very well in situations where it's unknowable, like intimacy or relationships, right? Like human relationships and connection and interaction, they're anything but formulaic. We, we try to impose a formula on them, but it, that's not the way it goes. It, it, like real good intimacy is being with the mess of ourselves as human beings. And so, I mean, I could ramble on about this for quite some time, but the, the biggest thing I've noticed is that these people tend to create really good results. They tend to be really reliable as leaders to create results, but they do so in a way that puts our humanity as a backseat. So you can see examples of this when people talk about how Steve Jobs was a leader. He's a great example of this. We're like, wow, amazing what he created in the world, but like not really very pleasant to be around, tough man to be in relationship with. Or um, the CEO of Uber, very driven, very smart man, kind of sucked at intimacy and, and human interaction and stuff like that. So those are some of the things I'm happy to talk more, but I don't want to, I don't want to blather on. Well, I have a couple of questions. When brilliance is that, how do you, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people think that, that they're brilliant, that you probably wouldn't categorize as brilliant. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who don't think of themselves as brilliant, whom you do. Ca- what makes someone brilliant? Because probably most people listening to the show are brilliant. Mm-hmm. Or is it people that they think they're brilliant or they are brilliant? And how do, how do you tell? So it's my measure is more of a subjective experience that these people have. So I'm not really interested in IQ. In fact, really brilliant people I've noticed can tend to score very high on IQ tests or very low. They score very high when they're the sort of person that's a brilliance max, uh, matched with, um, I've got to achieve like an overachiever sense. But another way these people show up is, wow, I'm brilliant, but I'm getting all this pressure growing up to be smart as a result. Screw it. I'm just going to not, I'm, I'm, I don't need to prove myself to all of you guys. And then they, they chronically underperform because that takes the pressure off. So it, it, it's tests and, and results like that tend to be a really bad measure of this. It's more an experience they often have of being a few steps ahead of people, an experience they often have of wishing that there was just like a, an instruction book they could follow to do relationship properly. Like they're trying really hard and they can't seem to get it straight. 
a sort of a voracious appetite for knowledge. They just love to read and to learn or to, to read books or anything like that. So these are the sort of things that I look for. But ultimately, I don't need, I don't, I could care less whether or not someone, you know, fits some objective criteria. I actually think objective criteria tend to be quite poor measures in terms of leadership and the development of that. I'm stuck on when you said they wish that there was an instruction book for how to get this relationship stuff. And mm. that's what my book does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. all of you who are listening closely, Leadership Step-by-Step by, Step by Joshua Spodek, available everywhere. <laughs> uh, but back to you, I think people are going to be very interested in this. I know you're working on a book. Is, is, do they have to wait for the book to come out or is there, or can they get early? Is there anything they can find out yet? Yeah, there's, um, so it's, we're, I'm currently working with an editor on that. So I've been, I was researching and having interviews like the ones you and I had uh, for about the last year and have written a whole, most of the body of the book is written. And then of course, as you well know, Josh, you know, you go through the editing process and you discover, wow, this isn't nearly as complete as I thought it was, or I've written seven books instead of one book or whatever. So it's probably on the timeline, it's probably about four months out before there's a pre-release or any sort of early release like that. But I'm happy to share this stuff with people. If they reach out to me, send me an email or anything like that, I can put them on a list that then I'm releasing bits and bobs as I go along because I'm a real believer in showing my work as opposed to getting a finished polished product and then putting it out there. I really think modeling leadership means letting people see the sausage as it's being made, so to speak. So how do they reach you? Uh, email is always a great way to do so, which is Adam at Evergrowth Coaching. You can put that in the show notes yeah, or whatever. The notes. Evergrowthcoaching.com. If everyone is always on Facebook and I'm there too. So that's always a good way to reach out. And then for the people that like things to be more formal, there's of course the sterilized environment of LinkedIn. <laughs> of what? Oh, like- of LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. I personally find it fascinating. And when you interviewed me, I was like, I, it, it's funny that I think maybe it's just me, but I feel like a lot of people are curious about it. And I think there's a, not a taboo, but a, people, it's like, you're not supposed to talk about that. Yeah. You can talk about how hard you work, but not about how smart you are or how smart uh, you can say other people are really smart. Like Elon Musk, he must be very smart. I don't know. Yeah. But it's, what is it? It's not, a ta- is it a taboo? Well, I think you're like, I, I, re- I describe it. Uh, I take leeway with this term, but it's, we're almost schizophrenic with it because I think that's the other thing I was going to say. Thanks for reminding me is, you know, we talked about people often, we project our brilliance onto other people because we're trained. You're brilliant. You need to do good things, but don't own that because that's arrogant. So there's like this weird relationship with, is weird. with it. Yeah. Where we crave recognition for it. We're like, ah, see me. I don't need you to hold me on a pedestal, but at least see my, my brilliance. It matters. It's part of who I am, but don't actually point to it because then I will then be insecure. That's right. And so what you get is a lot of, one of the things me and my people tend to struggle with is we, it's kind of like we stand beside the spotlight and peek our head in and do something awesome and then duck back out before you can throw a tomato at us. You know, like it, it shows up weird and awkward because we're trying to get that recognition without getting that recognition. It leaves people with a really weird experience when we're doing that. You know, I think I want to mention, there's two cases I know of where people do this effectively. One was, I think I want to mention when we, when we spoke, but in the movie Adaptation, Mm. Uh, Chris, I forget his last name. The actor plays a role and he plays this like Southern hick. Yes. And he's talking to the character from, you know what the, you know what the line I'm talking about? And he goes, yep. I'm like, what, what's the line? I'm the smartest person I know or something like that. 
I can't remember it either, but it's something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. And he just says it and you're like, yep. Like that's, he just said it. <laughs> and it's tough to say that actually in real life. And yes. then Frances Hesselbein, whom I've interviewed and she's, do you know who Frances Hesselbein is? No. She was the CEO of the Girl Scouts from 1976 to 1990, transformed the organization from a kind of privileged thing for, I don't know, upper middle-class white kids, girls. Mm-hmm. And it, one of the big things she, she, you know, this should, this organization should represent the country and the country is much more diverse than that. And this was in, you know, 76 to 90. And then as a result, Peter Drucker calls her the best leader in America. She mm-hmm. was awarded the presidential medal of freedom. She's worked with West Point and she's all this amazing stuff. And when you talk to her, a lot of times she talks about all these amazing things that she's done and she doesn't, it comes off as not bragging. She's just yeah. saying it. And so I asked her, how is it that you do this? Because most people don't do it. You talk about yourself, you get away with it. And what am I missing that you're pulling off? And she didn't even pause. She just said, let me see if I can say it. I mean, the crux of it was, I, does it add to the conversation? It's mm. not about her. It's about the conversation. Is it useful information for the conversation to share? And then she shares it if it's appropriate. And that's a big thing in leadership is, you know, the other person's perspective. I guess the conversation is not just one person or the other person, but the mutual thing. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, first, thanks for sharing that. I just love that, that stand. And people were trained that like not shining our light too bright is the right thing to like, not, not bragging, not boasting, not showing off. But what people don't get is if you are showing up at how the leader is being is how the team is being, how the leader is being is how the organization is being. And so if you are showing up as a leader, never, I see this all the time, never able to ask for and receive acknowledgement by which I mean, actually saying, like, if someone's like, wow, you are, you are so brilliant and it's amazing what you came up with. What we typically see is people, oh, you know what? It wasn't me. It was just my team or, you know, we brush it off. And there's a time and place to really acknowledge the team. But what I see more often than not is it's this knee jerk, like get that acknowledgement away from me because I do not want to be arrogant or seen that way. What we don't get is that that then creates a culture where no one is really able to like, in a funny kind of way, we're always passing the buck of acknowledgement. We're never really able to stand and own our own greatness. And that's a part of leadership too. People need to see you shine your light and own your greatness so that then they get like, oh, I can do the same thing. As long as the leader is always deferring the greatness, deferring acknowledgement, setting that aside, that leaves me with the experience like, oh, I guess it's not okay to do that here. I guess I got to acknowledge the people below me or beside me or above me instead of receiving what I really crave. It feels like there's a a nuance that people don't get that that they're black and white of like either you're arrogant or you're insecure or it's all extremes. Yes. Yeah. We, it's the middle path that we're always, that is the nature of leadership, right? Is as soon as you sort of think, ha, I figured it out. Now I only accept praise. Oh, now you've just got to do, you're just, you've moved the pendulum to the other side. Yeah. I think a mastery of a practice of an art of a craft tends to find the gradations between the black and the white. And then that's where the mastery shows is to be able to, I don't know, practice your craft with that nuance. And that's where, trusted advisors, coaches, someone who's really like doing their own work and is leading you can really make a difference because it's kind of like when you're in the subway and you, you look, you see the carts, you know, you look through the window to the next cart and you can see it moving on the rails 
but you don't perceive your own cart moving. Mm-hmm. And without that third party who's outside of our own experience, it's really hard for us to see like, oh, I've gone all the way to the left side of this road. There's like, I've overcorrected. It's really tough for us to see that on our own. Well, I hope that people follow up also, especially if, if people listening are like, if this re- resonates with you, contact Adam and mm. get that third perspective. Because you've worked with people, you, you, you've worked with a lot of people like that. And it sounds like that, I mean, look, I experience, there's no substitute for it. And you have it mm. feeling inspired. Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodekcom slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk, read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Uh, now I'm going to switch to the environment. Yes. And so you know the podcast. The, yeah. So I'm going to go through a couple things just because, let me pause for a second and ask, what, when, when you saw leadership in the environment, what about the environment matters to you? Does It doesn't matter to you. And if so, what's, what matters to you? So I love it because I can't remember. I think her name is Emily. The, Emily the Ann last, Peterson. That's right. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation you had with her and she had provided a, a sort of a take on the environment that was different from the one you had had in your mind. And, and I was kind of thinking like, what would my take on that be? And so there's certainly the environment, the physical environment, the, you know, the earth and, and all of that, but the environment that really, the environment I am most present to is like the collection of people that I interact with on a regular basis, like my environment is how I'm showing up in the world and all of the people around me. That's how I kind of hold the environment in the, in the biggest way. And so what does it matter to you? This sounds like something you care about. It sounds like something you're passionate about. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Deeply. And, and so it matters to me that, well, I really believe that if I don't change, nothing will. That's not some kind of weird, arrogant, like I'm the only one that can make a difference, but at least inside of like in my life, I'm the only one that I can change. I can't as much as I'd love to, and I would really love to, as much as I'd love to, I can't change anyone else. And so, but I can choose how I show up. I can make a difference in the way I'm willing to show up in the world around me. And so that, I I mean, it's so important to me because I think it's, It is the crux of all of this. It's the only thing I can really shift. So now you having quoted Emily, or not quoted, but referred to Emily, now this is now challenging for me because when she, she was not taking environment in the way that I thought of it or that I Mm. intended it, which was, you know, the physical environment, air, water, sea, land. And, but I said, all right, this is going to be a learning experience because she, she answered my questions. She was doing, she was following my lead Mm -hmm. and went to someplace I didn't expect, that's an opportunity for me to grow and learn. And you're doing the same thing. All right. So as much as I, so I'm going to follow that and see where it goes. <laughs> and it. I'm going to ask you if you're interested in taking on a challenge that where you act by these values of yours that you're talking about that now, all right, let, let's think of the constraints are going to be a little bit different for you. I mean, one of them is that I say, you don't have to solve all the world's problems overnight. I'm still going to try. Give it a shot. <laughs> you don't have to. Yeah. And uh, it has to be something that you personally do. It can't be something you tell others to do. Right. 
it has to make a difference along some measure. It can't be just awareness or knowledge. So something measurable, something observable has to change. And it's up to you to, I mean, usually people do stuff. You can make a permanent change or you can make a temporary change. But if, even if it's temporary, I hope I ask you to imagine making it long-term. Yeah. Is yes. there anything that comes to mind or has something come to mind already? Yeah, there's, there's two, there's two things. The first, the one is more traditional, which I'll, I'll come back to, but the first one, I noticed this funny thing I do. So I, I really struggle to be with people's judgment and like, that doesn't mean I can't stand I, when someone has judgment, I can stand in the face of that and put them in their place, so to speak. But I do so with a closed heart and it just becomes one person telling another person off. But the irony is that what I do is I judge the crap out of people for having judgments. So if someone has judgments about, for example, the current president of the United States, I've got a judgment about them doing that. And I think one thing that would be a great practice, which is really what we're talking about for me, would be to start to notice how often I'm doing that, to catch that, and then to, uh, like, to bring it forward and apologize to that person. So in the moment, like, wow, I just noticed like, I've got some judgments about your opinion. And I just want to, I want to apologize. I'm just catching myself on that. I'm sorry. I don't mean to get any mess on you, but I just, I want to call myself out. I want to own that because I'm really practicing acceptance in the broader sense. So that's, that's the first one. And I'll give you the second one and I'll let you be the arbitrator here, Josh. You can choose which is the correct practice. So the other one would be for the next month, I just buy, I be that person. I buy those bruised apples or I, I reach like I, I reach in and I grab the apple. I'm not going to go out of my way to buy the rotting apples, but like if I pick up an apple and it's got some bruises or whatever, great. That's the one I choose as opposed to setting all of those aside and choosing the, only the pristine. I don't see these things as being uh, exclusive and mm. I don't see them also as like taking up resources either. I mean, I guess the first one is going to draw, I, for me, that would take emotional resources. So it, it, well, at the beginning it might drain me, but then I don't know where it would go. It might, it might become easy and, and be something I look forward to as happens often when I develop emotional skills. Mm. The second one, I feel like also, I don't know if you listen to Tanner, he started by bringing not, uh, avoiding bringing plastic bags with him or yes. he was, he then took it on himself to like, try to get the, the grocery store to start carrying other bags and to change their policy. And he like took the next stage and I'm thinking, I would love a store to have the bruised apples be half price. Mm. And then I, if, not that I'm proposing that you do something like that, but that's the first thing that came to mind for me. It's like, if I want the bruised apples, if you'd like the non-bruised ones more, most people do, then charge less for the others. And then it feels like that would benefit the store and it would result in probably more apples sold. Well, here's where I am looking in terms of the resources is that that fruit often gets thrown out. So that's the cost is that rather than have that food be thrown out, I'm, here's what I notice: All of us would put up our hand if, if you were to ask like, hey, who's for equality of living conditions? We'd all be like, hell yeah. But then if the question was, great, are you willing to lower your quality of life to come down and meet people? Most of us aren't willing to do that. We want equality of life where everyone is raised up to the level we have in the West. So the practice there for me, and I'm totally up to take on a different one, but it's like a willingness to actually practice lowering to an extent the quality of life. Like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop down. I'm going to take less as opposed to wanting for more. And we should just all get pristine apples. You know, it's a bit of a weird example, 
is there a different direction you'd like me to kind of put my attention towards? I'm happy to take on something different. I'm just curious how that's going to turn out because the way I would frame it, you're framing it as lowering a quality of life. Materially speaking, that may be the case. I'm not sure. I, I, I haven't looked at the apples. I can tell you that for me, the more I go for like fresh vegetables from the farm, I mean, the ones I, I go to the farmer's market and they taste better than the stuff that looks prettier in the store. Mm. So you're still buying it at the same store. So it might not, you might have, might not have that effect, but so that's what I'm kind of curious about it. But materially speaking is not the only measure here because you're going to be acting on a value of yours. Maybe it's an experiment. Maybe you want to try to find things out. And I think that you'll find something out. I'm kind of curious how that'll turn out. So, I mean, I would say go to the farmer's market, but I don't know if there's one around you, but I'm kind of curious. Since you came up with it, mm. it's important for me that people do, I'm not telling them what to do. When people say, Josh, that's cool that you're getting people to do this stuff in the environment. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm asking them what their values are and a- giving them a chance to act on their values. Yeah. So you came up with something to act on your values. So the material outcome is I'm curious about, but it still fits the bill. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of leadership that I think is, I don't see people doing in the area of the environment. It's people telling people what to do or people educating them, which is really, I don't like this view of like, I, you know, I know and you don't. And once you find out what I know, then, then you'll realize how right I am or something like that. Yeah. So if I were to kind of put a word in, in like that, that label of value, it's like one of the things I really value is empathy. I really think if we were to get off of our high horse and the things we're right about and to really empathize with people, especially and even in those situations where it's its hardest, that the world would be a much different place. But instead, what we do is we sling mud at either side and then nothing really changes because it just causes us to entrench ourselves. And so that's that's where the uh, original the practice I came up with was like, if I can show up more empathetic and really get clear on other people more, maybe, I don't know, maybe that'll create an opportunity for other people to start to be like, huh, yeah, maybe I could have a little more space for this person on the other side of the divide from me. And I just think things would shift a lot more because then we'd start to work together instead of in opposition to one another. Well, the point of this podcast is for people to share experiences like that. Mm-hmm. So are you, do you want to do one, the other, both? Let's do both. Okay. Yeah. So let's be a high achiever. <laughs> <laughs> And a big experimenter and more to discover. Mm-hmm. So how long do you think it'll take for you to do these before it, it like kicks in that you have something to, to, to share? I really like a month. I like a month because that's a bit too long to white knuckle through it. Like I can do anything for a week. That's easy, right? We can all do a new year's resolution for seven days, but a month feels like it's going to get to the point where the novelty wears off. And then I have to confront the way I show up once the novelty is worn off. So that's what would feel good to me. Okay. And let's be very, let's make this smart, a smart goal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the first one, what's the measurable, you know, before you, I was listening to you say it and I was thinking, I don't hear anything measurable, but then you said you're going to say to someone. And so there's a, a communication there. Mm-hmm. You're doing it. There's a, something happening that the world can observe. Yes. So how would you put it? Well, we could set like a arbitrary number of people I have to share this to because I got judgments every second. So mm-hmm. we could say like, I'll, I'll call myself out to at least 10 people between now and, and whenever we next kind of connect on this one. So a month from now, at least 10 times. Okay. You said arbitrary. Is it, I mean, is it arbitrary or is that like something like how you said for the time that it's a, a reasonable, like it was an arbitrary number? Oh, it, it's, it's a reasonable number, but like, it's not any different than nine, right? Like I'm just... 10 is a nice round number and it appeals to my mathematicians. So it's arbitrary in that sense. 
10 feels like a good, that feels like a good number. Okay. So, I mean, cause it could be a hundred or it could be three. That's so, right. Exactly. But 10 feels like hundred might be like, now it's distracting from the rest of your life. And three is like, <laughs> you haven't really done it. Yeah. So it doesn't like between nine and 10, that could be arbitrary, but the, the, the order of magnitude sounds like that's yes, not arbitrary. Okay. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And so the deliverable on that one is that they, is that you communicate to someone. What's the deliverable? It's that I call myself out and apologize. So I call myself out. I own what's going on. Wow. I notice I've got a judgment showing up around that. I'm so sorry. I just want to call myself out and bring that into the light. And then, okay. So in a month from now, you'll, you'll just, you'll have some story about the 10 instances. I'm sure I'll have a couple of stories. Okay. And then the other one is when you buy Apple, is it just apples or produce in general? Produce in general. Yeah. Okay. So is it, it sounds like you're saying it's like, you're just going to grab whatever comes up top or. That's right. Yeah. And, and notice what shows up for me. Like, how does that, because the action is less, the action is just the doing. I'm most intrigued, at least for me, I'm intrigued. Like how, how, what's going to show up in my space when I do that? What's going to show up when I get home and I, and it's like time to eat this apple and, and, you know, or whatever, how's that going to go? What's that going to look like? But the deliverable itself is, I'm not picking through them. It's funny when I, when I, the, the rule at my house is no digging for chunks. Uh-huh. Which came from college when people get Ben and Jerry's because, you know, you want to <laughs> just get the good parts. Yeah. And then here I make these vegetable stews and people like, they're like, they like broccoli. So they're digging through for the broccoli. I'm like, no, you get every, you, like the rule is you get what you get. So you're going to be no digging for chunks. <laughs> in my <laughs> I language. love it. All right. So I have my calendar out. So today's February 1st. So that would say March 1st or so. Are you up for scheduling the next conversation? I am, but my request is that we do it offline just because I've got another call starting quite shortly. And, um, but I'm, I'm happy, like, look, why don't we tentatively say sort of like right in early March and then I'll, we can, if you'd be willing, we can do that over email and just schedule something. Okay. Yeah. Do you mind taking responsibility for that so that? Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Oh man. And can you also put something in there about, I'm sure this will come up, but judgment and you're apologizing. If we get the chance next time to talk about, I think judgment is, it's kind of like if I bite into a delicious peach, I can't help myself from feeling like, oh man, that was good. Yeah. And I think that I would never apologize for liking the, for being like, oh, that peach was delicious. And if something <laughs> right. is, if something is not voluntary, if it's something that that's just how the brain works, to me, there's a little funniness there of like, I wouldn't apologize for, if I stub my toe, I'm like, ow, that hurt. I'm like, oh, sorry. I didn't mean for, to, to experience that pain. Oh, I love it. Yeah, we can, abs- I'll make a note of that. And I think there's a rich conversation there. Absolutely. All right. So I'll let you get to your next thing. And I usually close with any last words, anything to the, to the listeners or anything I didn't think to bring up to before wrapping up. No, I think that like, I, I just really enjoyed this conversation and, and where we've gone. It feels really great. Awesome. So I'll leave it there and then I'll look for your emails. I'll talk to you again soon. And thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to how this goes. Me too. It's been a pleasure and I can't wait for the next conversation, Josh. Me too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Back when I'd first started recording these conversations, I hadn't yet learned to see that when people talk about people as their environment, they're playing it safe. We all know acting on the environment starts hard. So I was glad when he moved to bruised apples that would have been thrown away. I don't accept that imperfectly looking apples are materially lowering quality of life. 
And there's so many similar things that people feel like it has to be this way or it's some suffering thing. Like they have to get their plastic bags or they have to have their water bottles a certain way and things like that when they don't even need any of these things. After a while, in my experience, supermarket apples look weird. Farmer's market ones, they don't look quite so uniform, but they have more flavor. They look normal to me. I look forward to hearing how things transform for him. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.